Good morning, church. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading will be from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning this rising from the dead uh, might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Tony. Well, again, glad you're here this morning as we head into, we're now into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, really deeper than that into the second half of Gospel of Mark, but there was a turning point last week. If you were here, you heard, you saw that in Jesus, or in Peter's words, as he professed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, in the first half of his Gospel, uh, Mark has been describing who Jesus is, why he came, and now this second half, we will make a beeline to the cross. Really, you can see that Jesus starts talking more and more about his death and about his suffering. This morning, we, he says that again. Well, what happens to you, as we jump in today, what happens to you when you receive news you didn't expect? Think about yourself for a moment now. How do you respond when you receive news you didn't expect? I mean, I guess it depends on the type of news, right? The type of news that it is, whether it's seen as good news or bad news. Uh, it, it depends. I have a love for uh, live music. I love, uh, just love seeing people use their musical gift and get to uh, go into different concerts or venues and hearing live music. And I remember a time when I was in my uh, early, uh, tw- I guess in tw- early 20s, I guess, and a friend of mine and I had um, gotten a couple tickets to see one of our favorite bands. And we had actually spent, because it was one of our favorite bands, we spent some, uh, some decent money on this uh, concert. And we even had gotten front row, two center seats. So right here, right there we would have been, we were sitting front row center seats we got. And so we prepared, we got the tickets, and I went over to his, his house on the day of this concert and drove up, and he was already waiting outside for me sitting on the curb. And as I drove up, I noticed he, he was looking a little uh, dejected. 
you might say. A little forlorn, a little down. Uh, I was excited. I ran up to him. I you know, let's go. Let's get in the car. Living in L.A. at that time around there, it was like traffic. We got to get there. Let's get in the car. We're going to miss the, the, the beginning of the show. He looks up at me and says, the concert was last night. I know, you know, you can just laugh or laugh, you know, let's go, let's get in the car, let's go, let's get in the car. And he's like, no, no, the concert was last night. Sure enough, he hands me the tickets. It was last night. Totally dejected. Uh, totally, you know, I'd laughed it off, but after he handed me the tickets, I knew it was proven. And you know, that was just a concert of my youth. So, you know, we, we, you know, now we're like, oh, but you're really a minor thing in the grand scheme of things. Unexpected news. How do you respond when you get it? Uh, the, un- the news of an untimely death, loss of a job, unexpected illness. Unexpected news can rattle us to the core at times. It can. You've gotten some before in your own life. And many times we find ourselves, as I even did back in my 20s that night, uh, surprised at our inability to cope with the fallout it brings, the suffering it brings. Well, the disciples had just proclaimed, in Peter's words last week, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Jesus, yes, Peter, you're right. Spot on with that. And Peter, Jesus said, only God could have revealed this to you even, Peter. Not your own flesh and blood, but Peter, I must suffer and die. Can you imagine the dejection? The disciples felt at that unexpected news. It was absolutely unexpected. All their hopes, all their dreams, all their future thoughts were wrapped up in what they expected the Messiah to be, and they had been dashed in that moment when he brought that unexpected news to them. But so much so that Peter rebukes his Lord, no, 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 Jesus, you will not die. But like the kind, gracious, loving, merciful God that he is, he deals with them right where they're at, as he does with us a lot. He knows right where we're at. He knows how we're responding. He knows how we are responding to these unmet expectations at time in life. And he deals with them right where they're at. And he gives them a dose of encouragement we're going to see this morning with a trip to the mountaintop, a trip to a mountaintop uh, that we might even call a gospel mountaintop of truth to these disciples that had just gotten this unexpected news and whose worlds have been turned upside down and shattered. So let's go with them there this morning to this mountaintop. This Sunday, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus reveals even more of his true identity we're going to see this morning in a glorious display of his divinity now. The Father joins him there and affirms his Son and the unexpected truth that glory and suffering go hand in hand. That's what we'll see this morning. To really encourage them, as we're going to see, to walk that same road. So let's look this morning at three unexpected points of clarity because sometimes the unexpected news is even better than we could ever imagine as we're going to see today. So grab your outline. You got it there? Hopefully you got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9. You got your outline for some fill-ins there to help you. Our life group questions on the back. As we look at our first unexpected point they saw on the mountaintop that we're going to see this morning is this. Jesus shows his glory for the good of his disciples. Jesus shows his glory for the good of his disciples. Let's take a look at verses 1 to 4 again. 
And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. It's a really strange scene, isn't it? It's even hard to imagine what's taking place on this, this mountaintop. You know, one of the reasons we think about things we like to do, we like to go to the movies. Nobody in here? A couple. Okay, good. Oh, there we go. Okay, there, now we're honest. You're with me. You're with me. I think one of the reasons we like to go to movies, I know I do, is we, the, the, the coming attractions that come at the beginning, although they're starting to show like 10, 11, or 12 of them when they used to be just a few, so it's getting a bit much, but I do like going for the coming attractions. They're these short, condensed summaries of what is to come. They're really there to, to raise our expectations, to uh, excite us. Well, Jesus said to them in verse 1, some of you are going to see something stunningly powerful before you die. Jesus gives them that on the mountaintop. And that's probably most commentators think when he says you'll see the kingdom coming in power before you die, that he meant this transfiguration. He meant, that's why Mark puts it right next to that verse. He meant this experience that he was going to give them. And so he takes his three closest friends, really, his three closest disciples, and he gives them really a, a coming attraction, so to speak, a coming attraction of what is to come. He shows them something powerful to raise their expectations, to even excite them a little bit, a blinding interaction with God on this mountaintop. You know, centuries earlier, if you think of your Bible history and characters in the Bible, centuries earlier, did you know the man Moses had a similar interaction with God on, the, on a mountaintop? Maybe when Tony was reading this morning, maybe he started making some of those connections. God descended in a cloud and spoke to Moses, who was powerfully impacted by that experience. It was really when Israel came to the mountain and they were, God was interacting with them. And it was really the time when he revealed himself through his law and who he is and his character to them. Moses was a man that communed with God at that time like no one else. Here's what God said to him in Exodus 24. He said to Moses, come up to the Lord. Come on up this mountain, basically. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Don't get too close, Moses. And so Moses had these interactions as he went towards the mountain as God called him to himself. These interactions with God on the mountaintop where he gave him the law. You maybe remember some of that. And then there's 10 or so chapters of law and, and different descriptions in there. But he takes three others with him, no less, just like Jesus took how many? Three disciples. You see them listed there, those men. Jesus took three with him. Moses at that time as he went there, which connects to our story with Jesus on the mountaintop, Moses had this desire to just know who this God is. Show me who you are. Who are you? You're asking us to do a lot in following you. So show us a little about yourself. He had this desire to see God's glory. He said this in Exodus some chapters later, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I'll make my, all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand till I've passed by. Then I'll take my hand, away my hand, you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen, Moses. It's God's word to Moses. Why couldn't Moses see clearly God's face or to be exposed to all of God's glory? Do you know? He'd die. He would die. In his sinful state, in the state he was in, he would die. We don't think about God like this very often. We don't think about God like this. The magnitude of his, of his goodness, of his glory that Moses wanted to see. Moses didn't know what he was asking, really. He'd gotten himself in a little bit too deep. God's otherness, his blazing, blinding presence that without some filtered uh, presence between us, we would die. And he says to Moses, I'll put you in this rock. I know exactly how much of me you can handle in the state you're in. And it's so powerful. Do you remember what happened? When Moses comes down the mountain, what do we see? It's Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, there they are, the law of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know. He didn't realize that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. He comes down the mountain and his face is so bright from just being in God's presence, not even the full presence, but a filtered presence that the people must come and cover it. They must cover him up in his face because it terrifies them. They're afraid of him. Moses reflects God's light from the outside. He reflects God's light from the outside. But what do we see of Jesus here on the mountain now when we get to our mountaintop? Let's take a look. Here's the first thing we see, the union of God and flesh we're going to see. As we think back to that story, Moses reflecting God's light from the outside, like, a, like the moon reflects the sun. Think about that. We've had a, a full moon this last week or so, really big moon up there in the sky. As the moon reflects the sun, so Moses reflected God's glory. Or you think about a mirror. Have you ever had somebody or their watch face sort of catches you and you're like, whoa, and the blinding light from that? That's how Moses reflected God's glory, like a mirror or the moon. But do you see what's happening here with Jesus? Jesus is transformed, transfigured, transformed in front of them. Now, centuries later, on another mountain, there's glory again. Centuries later, on this mountain, there's glory again. But with Jesus, it's not a reflection. It's not a reflection. The light emanates from him. Think about that. It's not a reflection. The light emanates from him from the inside out. From the inside out, he blinds them with his glory. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. That's what they saw on this mountaintop. Something was exposed to them. Not a reflection, but the actual source of light, of glory, of truth, and he gives them a peek into who he was and who he's always been from eternity in that moment. They got a peek back in time in that moment, into a time eternity when he was transformed in front of them. He's, like he's saying to them, you see this body, Peter, James, and John, and, and it's real, but look at this. And they were exposed to something we can only imagine. Reminds me of Hebrews 1. 
3, the beginning of that verse, he is the radiance. That's what he was doing. He was radiating, not reflecting. He was radiating on that mountaintop, the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And he upholds the universe with the, by the word of his power. That's what they were experiencing. Jesus is God in that moment. They see it in a way they never had. His clothes shine brighter. It's really weird than OxyClean can even get them is what the writer says. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Whiter than anybody could ever bleach them. So it's just a way to describe it in human terms we can understand. Brighter than OxyClean. It's as if he's saying to his disciples in that moment, oh, yes, 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 I understand. Suffering will come. I've spoken of it. Hard times will come. Hey, but look here real quick. Bam. And he hits them. He hits them with true reality. I know it's coming, but look. Bam. And he hits them with this blinding light, a blazing display of glory. You might not get it, guys, but look at this. Pow. And they see him. He hits him with really the experience of worship by his powerful presence. Jesus is God in flesh. And he wanted his disciples to see it there. But we see something else too happening here that's strange. We've got this law and prophet cameo, we're going to call it. The law and prophet cameo. Sometimes in those movies, that's our theme today, sometimes in those movies we like to see from time to time, we love it when there's a cameo. What is that? It's a, you know, a, a movie that you're watching. Some famous, really famous like A-list actor just shows up. You don't even know they're going to be in the movie. And they're there for a, you know, a brief time on the screen. Or, or to think back to some of our old movies when um, Alfred Hitchcock would show up in every picture right at the beginning, that famous profile, and he'd walk by. That's a cameo. Well, here, Moses and Elijah show up with a, a cameo, really. A, a real quick appearance. The real, now, let's be clear, the real Moses and Elijah show up. And Luke, in the parallel account of this same story, tells us they come to talk with Jesus about his death. It's really interesting. Think of Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament figures standing there talking with Jesus about his death. And do you know what's interesting? In Luke's parallel account, the word he uses... Uh, that Luke uses when he says they were talking about Jesus' death, that word he uses for death is the word exodus. The word exodus. Exodus. Moses and Elijah show up to talk with Jesus about his exodus, his death. A different kind of exodus though, isn't it? Than the one Moses went through. And he led the people of Israel out of slavery. Similar but different. This is the one where he saves us and leads us out from sin and death. A bigger, a truer, a greater exodus. A new Passover, right? Himself and his blood. A new greater final sacrifice, himself on the cross. A resurrection, a new people, the church. Moses comes to talk with Jesus about the greater exodus. That's what's happening. Well, Elijah and Moses are really there in their cameo to represent for us, to us to see the law and Moses, and the prophet Elijah. The law and prophet. That's why we call it the law and prophet cameo. They're there to point us to the fact that Jesus is the true and better one, both law and prophet, and will fulfill it. Malachi pro prophesied this in chapter 4. Take a look. The last book of the Old Testament. He said, remember the law of my servant Moses. 
the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you, there's this prophecy, Elijah, the prophet, before the awesome, or before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. With their appearance, God is signaling something. He's telling us even today, something unexpected is happening. You're right, Peter. It's unexpected news. But it's something unexpected. Jesus himself will fulfill what these two represent. The law and all the words of the prophets. This isn't a mountain of law, disciples. This is a gospel mountain of grace where suffering and glory will converge and come together in this unexpected Messiah that you couldn't have ever guessed, Peter. Look, Moses and Elijah, he will fulfill this. And Jesus said it in the Scripture. Didn't he say, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but what? Fulfill. Fulfill. And God gives his disciples a picture. But Peter doesn't quite get it, does he? It wasn't what he expected like many times in our own life. Not what we expect. So what does the Father do? It's our second unexpected clarifying point. Here it is. The Father makes it clear. Glory and suffering do go together in His plan. Glory and suffering go together. It's that unexpected clarifying point. As Peter is speaking the words, hey, let's set up a few tents here. Moses is here. Elijah's here. Those are some pretty good guys. And the Messiah is here. Let's, let's build some, some tents. As he's speaking the words, those very words, Luke records, as they're leaving his mouth, this cloud now. Okay, so let's try to picture this in your mind like we're there. Jesus is shining bright. This cloud quickly descends upon them. As Peter's saying the words, they're leaving his mouth, and it envelops them, totally surrounds them, envelops them. Here's what we're seeing, that he comes to make things clear by his presence is the first thing. The Father comes in this cloud to make things clear for these guys and for us by his presence. You know, we're not quite, we're not quite sure why Peter says what he says. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, we do know on the one hand, Matthew, or Mark records, he's terrified. He's absolutely terrified of what's taking place. And so, you ever done that? You're, you're caught off guard or afraid, you just blurt the first things that comes out of your mouth. Usually not the best idea, is it? Peter does that uh, frequently in the Gospels. You've got to love him. And he just says, well, let's set, up that, let's set up these tents. He's probably shaking. Let's just, yeah, Jesus, here's some tents. This is it. Let, let's keep this thing going. If this is a good party we've got going here. Let's keep it going. Let's set up some tents. You know, we know he's terrified. But on the other hand, Elijah's just come in Peter's mind. Elijah just comes. Again, Peter forgets, doesn't he? He forgets the cross. He forgets that Jesus has already said, I have to suffer and die. He forgets the true mission of Jesus. So God comes, the Father. Graciously, although terrifying, right? In his presence to make sure they understand. Yes, he's the glorious Messiah. But he's right, Peter, James, and John. He will suffer and die. He comes in His presence. God comes and He gives them this 
absolutely incredible experience. What the Bible calls it, it's a strange word. It's really, it's really just a Hebrew word. It's called Shekinah. It's kind of weird, isn't it? The Shekinah glory. Maybe you've heard that term before. The Shekinah glory of God. It really just means God's dwelling there or where his presence kind of settles down so that we can experience him as humans. That's really all it means, even though it's a strange word. Whenever God settled his presence, his divine presence with his people, whether it's the burning bush or the pillar of cloud and fire by night that they followed around, uh, it was his Shekinah glory. It was a manifesting of himself for the sake of his people in some physical way that their senses could interact with. That's what's taking place here. To communicate something absolutely important, very important. The fire in the bush or the fire in the pillar of the cloud where, hey, I'm going to show you where to go. My presence is here. Follow me. The burning bush, Moses, I've got news for you. You're going to lead these people. And he communicates there. So here again, why does he come in this way? To communicate something very important. Like Jesus who reveals his glory to comfort the disciples in that moment, the Father does too. Something similar he did with Moses on the mountaintop. And so God uses his presence, but he also uses his voice as well to clarify their expectations and help them understand that in Jesus, glory and suffering will go together. To help them see that Jesus is unique. And he's the reason you can actually be in my presence. He does this one by his voice. So we have his presence here, but we also have the Father's voice. You know, maybe Peter put Jesus and Moses and Elijah, maybe he was thinking of them on the same plane. Hey, let's make three tents for three really important people. We've got the law and Moses here. We've got the prophet Elijah here. And then we've got the Messiah. What could be better? Who could be a better group of people to have together? We've got all three of them. Let's make some tents. You know what's interesting? The word for tent is actually the word tabernacle. Did you know that? The word for tent is actually the word tabernacle. Most religions of the world, if you think about it now, all the different religions of the world, they all know and they all realize we need something to protect us from the presence of God. God's big. He's glorious. He's holy. All the religions of the world know you need something in between you and God. Well, maybe it was a tabernacle in, in Israel's time. The rituals, the, the sacrifices to protect us from God's Shekinah glory, His presence. We need something. Something. God needs to hide Moses, remember, in the rock. Something to protect him. As we said, the Israelites met with God in the tabernacle, a big tent, didn't they? Where they made sacrifices for their sins, always a few steps removed from his presence. A few steps removed. But do you see here, Peter, James, and John come in to the head-on direct presence of the Shekinah glory of God and don't die. Why? How's it possible? Imagine you're there. You see Moses and you see Elijah and the Messiah's blazing light from the inside out and then this cloud comes down and this voice comes, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, verse 8 says, the cloud's gone. 
and Moses is gone, and Elijah is gone, and who's left standing there? Jesus. Jesus. Christ alone. He's just standing there in front of them. Jesus is what God is saying here, bridges this gap. This is why, Peter, James, and John, you can be in my presence and not die because the Messiah is here. Jesus is here. Jesus has always been the one that's bridged the gap between God and man. That presence that we will die in front of without. Jesus is the bridge for all humanity. Not just us Christians. He has to be the bridge for all humanity. You have to come through Him to the Father. That's what God is saying. He's there and probably just silent. And there Jesus is standing in front of them. Peter, you don't need a tent. (laughs) You don't need a tabernacle anymore. Jesus is the new tabernacle. I love how Kent Hughes puts it. He says, the Shekinah was gone. That's the cloud. Jesus' skin and clothing no longer glowed. Moses and Elijah disappeared. The voice of the Father was still, and three disciples saw only Jesus, backlit by the galaxies he had created. This is what all our experience, all our theology, all our work should come to, seeing only Jesus. When this happens, our hearts honor him in worship. We love all mankind as we ought. We give our lives in his service and we embrace the paradox of the cross. He's saying, it's all about Jesus. That's why we talk about him so much. That's why we say we want to be Christ-centered. That's what God did in that moment. He took this whole big thing that was going on and said, look, you don't need a tabernacle. The Messiah is right in front of you. You need Jesus. So gracious of him. So kind of him in that moment. You see what the Father was doing? He's not only giving the disciples this encouragement, but he's also giving his son encouragement, Jesus. Jesus was real, real human too. And he needed an encouragement because he was going to walk that road of suffering, the road he planned for him. He was giving them hope in the middle of that. Because sometimes the unexpected news, isn't it? Sometimes it's better actually than we could ever imagine. It was better than Peter, James, and John could imagine. And sometimes the Savior you need or thought you needed was not the one you really needed. And they didn't quite see that. But the Father was going to show them that. And so God gives them a peek, a foretaste, a moment like no other. It's our third unexpected point from the mountaintop. The peek behind the curtain of future glory gives those disciples and Jesus, it gave them a present hope. And that's what I want it to do for us. This is where we wrap it up this morning. That peek behind the curtain of future glory gave them this present hope there. As they make their way down the mountain, Jesus tells them again, don't tell anybody else about this yet. Look at verses 9 and 10. Or excuse me, actually verses... Yeah, 9. Starting at 9. As they were coming down the mountain, He charged them, Tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what is this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How, and how is it written the Son of Man that he should suffer? There it is. Many things to be treated with contempt. 
I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it's written of him. The apostles couldn't quite grasp the meaning of the transfiguration yet. That's why he said, hey, keep this a secret until I rise from the dead. While they more than likely grasped God's glory in a better way, or that the sun, or the sun's glory, or maybe even began to understand Jesus as God in flesh, the full implications of this transformation wouldn't be understood until the resurrection, he says. Because it points to that resurrection, this glory. It points even, you would say, to his second coming, this blinding light they saw. That's how he's coming back the second time. Not humbly in a manger, but a blinding light. Wait till the Son of Man, he says, has risen from the dead. But it was exactly the experience they needed to see them through this trial, to see them through what was going to come. They had to experience it for a moment. And God gave that to them. You know, you can, ex- you can have somebody tell you that a movie's great, can't you? Oh, it's the best. It's the best movie. It's so good. And you got to go see it. And you may even believe them. You might think, oh, it's got an actor in I really like or, or a director I really like. And you might even believe them. But until you experience the movie, right, for yourself, the drama, the suspense, the excitement, the, the, the finale, until you experience it yourself, it's not quite the same thing, is it? You go, oh, yeah, I'm sure it's good. Thanks for telling me, you know, until you experience it yourself. Isn't that why we come? What do we do when we come out of movies? We're not silent. What are we doing? We're talking about it, aren't we? We're talking about the shared experience. Wasn't that great when that, oh, did you see when that, oh, wasn't that amazing ending? I could never have expected that ending. So we talk about it when we come out of those movies. It's a shared experience. That's exactly what God was giving them, a shared experience of himself. That's what they needed. A peek behind the curtain of glory to give them present hope. Because the cross was so unexpected. The suffering in your life so many times is so unexpected. The trials, the loss, the news that comes through email or phone call, so unexpected. But the resurrection would come. And so he gives them a foretaste. He was getting them ready for this truth. Here it is. Suffering must come, but resurrection will come too. Suffering must come, but resurrection will come too. But like you and I do many times, with that unexpected news, what was Peter doing? He pushes back again. He pushes back on Jesus again. This time even a little more directly. Sometimes as we do as well when we're suffering for the sake of our faith, or feel the hand of God's discipline to correct us. Peter says, wait, 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 Jesus. We just saw Elijah. We just saw Elijah. Why did the scribes say he has to come first? You know, he's probably thinking, hey, he was here. This is the day of the Lord. Let's just do this thing. Why do you keep talking about suffering still? Elijah's here. He came. Don't you remember Malachi, Jesus? And Jesus says, Elijah has come. He comes before the day of the Lord. And here was his response. Mark 9, 13, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it's written of him. Who was he talking about? Does anybody know? Who was he talking about there? He's talking about John the Baptist. The prophecy of Malachi was actually really not truly necessarily. Elijah did come physically and it was starting the day of the Lord, yeah. 
but it was ultimately about this John the Baptist who paved the way for the Messiah. As in Matthew, we know Jesus even says, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. That's how we know. Jesus says the words himself. John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. What happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded. Jesus says, I go his way. That's the way I go. I go his way. They couldn't see their greater need. They couldn't see that they, that they needed, actually, him to go that way. They needed his death. They couldn't see his sin uh, or their sin for his death. They couldn't see the exchange. It just wasn't what they expected. And maybe that's you today. You look at your life. You look at the cross. You hear about God's glory, his holiness. You look at yourself and you say, would God really? He's got a judge? Isn't love just to, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. That's not loving. If our God just looked at sin and said, eh, turn a blind eye or just said, don't worry about it, that's not loving either. He's just. He must be just. And that's why they needed a, a sacrifice. So Jesus gave them a peek behind the curtain and shows them His divine glory in that moment to give them hope. To give you hope. That He is human, yes, but he's also the, the blazing, glorious center of God. It may look bleak. It may look weak, he says to the disciples. I may look weak. I'm talking about suffering. I'm talking about death. I'm talking in a, about a cross, but beauty and power and glory is coming, he says. Do you remember that climactic scene in the classic movie, Wizard of Oz, that movie that captured probably all of our imaginations in here at some time. That climactic scene of Wizard of Oz at the end, Dorothy finally makes it. She finally gets to the great and powerful Oz. She has all these expectations, doesn't she? He can get you this, and he can get you that, and he'll get me home this heart-longing homesickness she has. I just want to get home. That we all have, really. And she arrives at this scene you see here behind me. And what does she see, really? She sees the Shekinah glory of Oz, really, doesn't she? <laughs> the blazing light and the fire and the smoke. And finally, she's, getting, she's there and she says, Ah, I'm going to get my wish. She's thinking, I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get my expectation. And Oz says to her, do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said, come back tomorrow. She went all this way. I said, come back tomorrow. And in anger, Dorothy says back to him, if you were really great and powerful, you'd keep your promises. But what do we come to find out? The wizard had no real power, actually. Because when we peek behind the curtain, what do we see? Who was he? Just a man pulling a bunch of levers. Remember that? He had no real power. Just a man pulling a bunch of levers. The transfiguration is the exact opposite of that. They had expectations. They had wishes. Jesus, you're the Messiah. But the more we get to know you, the more we don't understand you. Suffering, death, a cross. If you were really great and powerful, you'd keep your promises, Jesus. It's Dorothy's line. And so what does he do? Pulls back the curtain for them. 
pulls back the curtain and shows him his eternal true self. And when he does, it's no mere human pulling the levers of some great scheme. It's the true God-man. That's what he shows them. It's the exact opposite of what we, we see here. I may look like I'm losing. I may ask you to suffer. It may look like in your life all hope is lost, but Jesus says, just wait. My suffering will lead to this kind of glory. Look behind the curtain. There it is. We weren't there. We don't get to see it firsthand, but we can believe it happened. We can imagine it the best we can, and the Holy Spirit can take it and make it real in your heart. It's what he's doing for us today. He's setting our mind on the things of God rather than on the things of man. It's our final point today. If that's what he's doing for the disciples, let's do it ourselves. Set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. It was the words Jesus said to Peter last week, actually. Jesus' transfiguration was a look back into eternity, actually. Back into his pre-human power that he already had. His glory, his divinity. His power just slipped to the surface for a brief moment for them. For them to see. To point them forward in their lives of what is to come future glory in Jesus. So set your mind on that today again. Wrap your heart around that again today. And you will live faithful, courageous, humbly, lovingly, even sacrificially in the here and now because you know what's coming, don't you? You know what's coming. So, as the Father said, here, listen to him. But he also said it here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Who's saying this? Do you know? Moses. The Lord will God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. So listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to a very glorious, strange, powerful life-altering story for these disciples today. My God, let it be life-altering for us too. It's so hard to make the transfiguration come alive for us. We weren't there. We don't see it, but yet we know it happened. Lord, give us just a sense a bit more this morning of the reality of, of God in flesh. What did that look like, Lord? When that blazing light peeked through that body for a moment. Lord, someday we'll see you, Jesus, in that light again. So may that give us hope in the here and now to live humbly for you, sacrificially for you, and listening to you as Moses pointed us to you and God the Father himself said, listen to him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.